Welcome to episode 6 of the Revolution Podcast, where I, your host Ryan, sit down with industry experts to discuss the latest trends in e-mobility, clean tech, and the future of transportation. Today I'm joined by Chris Ramsey, electric vehicle adventurer, speaker, presenter, and expedition leader at Plugin Adventure. Widely regarded as the pioneer of overland and endurance electric vehicle and sustainable adventures, Chris has taken his audiences across continents and through more than 20 countries on a series of epic world-first adventures using zero-emissions transport. As the founder of Plugin Adventure, Chris has not only pioneered and changed the way the adventure industry explores our fragile planet, but is also breaking Guinness World Records along the way. Into the episode we go. Thank you for joining the podcast, Chris. Yeah, thanks for inviting me, Ryan. It's good, it's good to be here and, and chat to your, uh, your listeners. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. And I'd actually like to start with hearing a little bit about your passion for electric vehicles um, and sustainability and how it all started, really. Yeah, I mean, it's. I would love to say I've got this fairy tale story that um, when I grew up, I was, you know, I was passionate about about sustainability, and I was one of these guys that kind of latched on to environmental issues. Um, but reality it isn't. Um, I was born in a little town called Redcar in northeast of England. Um, that actually now does have a wind farm, interestingly enough. Um, okay. But I had a forces background. My father was in the forces, so I spent a lot of time as a child traveling around the world. Um, probably one of the most amazing places I was in was in Berlin during the time the war was still up. So I remember Checkpoint Charlie and all that, and all that um, amazing kind of historical figures from from that time. But um, sustainability was never really on my on my agenda, and it was something I was never really aware of. Um, and ironically, we my father moved to Aberdeen, the oil and gas capital of Europe, um, because he fixed helicopters and all these helicopters that travel backwards and forwards to the offshore rigs. Um, so I evidently grew up in Aberdeen over the last 20 years and fell into the same old routine of, of working in the oil and gas industry because that is the industry here. Um, and it was actually not until uh, one day that an advert for an electric car flashed up on my screen um, as one of the adverts along one of the banners. And I was thinking, electric cars, what's this, what's this all about? Um, and that's how my actual, my passion for sustainability and, and electric vehicles kind of started because until then I just did like everybody else. I recycled, recycled paper, I recycled my bottles. Um, I traveled or I went into the mountains I went, I did do a lot of travel around the world quite a lot. And I always made sure when I was in these environments that I didn't litter, I didn't, you know, damage the environment while I was there. So I was conscious in that way. Um, but ironically, I was obviously then working in an industry that was at that time was destroying the planet. Um, and so when I discovered the car, I, I, I took that electric car, that Nissan Leaf back in 2012, jumped in it with a friend and we had this mad capped idea. We drive around the UK and drive to all three UK capital cities and find out just what this technology is all about, because essentially that's how my brain works. To understand something, I throw myself straight into it and, and right in the deep end. Um, and well, about 60 charges in the entire country at that point, to say the least, it was a bit of a nightmare. Um, we charged in Asda's front entrance, we were dangling extension cables out of hotel windows, but I loved it. I gotta say, I absolutely loved it. I really did. Um, and that kind of kick-started things for me then back in 2012. Um, and since then things have just grown and, you know, it's, it kind of, if you look at it today, uh, fast forward to the day, you know, I've driven now everything from a Twizy 
to a, to have been in a, a sat in a RIMAC and been along in a RIMAC concept one. I've held talks for the United Nations and WWF about climate and conservation projects. And every day, the passion to play a small part in the transition of the sustainable, the sustainable planet or to provide a more sustainable planet for our future generations, that just grows in me every day. And it's, it's, been, a, it's been a very varied story and very varied journey to this point. It's interesting you said um, that the kind of infrastructure wasn't there uh, eight years ago in 2012. Um, and actually owning an electric car then was, was probably not convenient for anybody. Over the years, you must have really seen a, a change, a shift in, in the infrastructure that means that actually owning the electric car becomes a much easier thing to do. Yeah, I mean, um, after that trip, I actually, I actually loved the the electric vehicle life so much that I actually went out and got my Nissan Leaf. I got, mm-hmm. I got, a, um, I ended up buying a, at that time a twenty fourteen Nissan Leaf, um, and I still have that car today. And you know, we talk about the early adopters, and yes, you know, we've, I've been in those stages where I've driven from Aberdeen down to as far as London and it's taken yes a long time because I'm driving every 50 60 miles and charging the car which is is a nightmare in a sense because you you couldn't use the air conditioning you couldn't use the heating you can use because it drained the battery mm. and but fast forward to today again and, and you look as you say the infrastructure has grown immensely you know we have more petrol we have more sorry charging locations in this country than we do have petrol stations and the battery technology and that's a big part of where people maybe get concerned about battery reliability battery technology has has come on just leaps and bounds the old generation leaf batteries um compared to today are just night and day and you know we're talking 200 miles with a lot of cars comfortably on one charge and that's driven at motorway speeds and that just makes the whole electric vehicle journey and long distance journeys that people do very rarely I would I'll add because some people think always think they drive long distances all the time um, when they talk about transitioning to an electric car um, mm-hmm. you're looking at those 200 miles driving for you know, two and a half three hours and then you want to stop anyway and then there's charging infrastructure installed in all the all the motorway service stations all the in hotels and places are off the motorway service stations so charging becomes just as convenient as refueling your petrol car it's interesting you kind of referred to the range anxiety that a lot of ev drivers or potential ev drivers probably more so have um and it's always it's 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 a common thing that we do as humans which is look at the potential negatives of something and assume that those negatives are probably going to impact us more than they actually do so as you say people think that they're going to drive uh, more than that 200 300 miles when in reality that's very rare and if they do they're probably or, or should be taking breaks in between and especially with fast chargers um you can actually um charge your electric car fairly quickly yeah i mean i i get i get told quite a lot when you when you speak to people about driving electric cars you're right okay so so what is it you need out of a car and they completely discount the fact that you know 95% of their journeys are backwards and forwards to work, which in most cases are you know the maximum commutes around what 18 miles, probably at the most mm-hmm. in some places. So they then immediately jump to I need to do 800 miles, and it's interesting because that barometer used to be 400 miles, and yeah. every time the battery ranges increase, people go, oh no, I need to go 500, then 600, now we've got to 800. 
And you say, okay, so you drive 800 miles and at no point on that journey do you ever stop. You don't include either a breakfast stop or a lunch stop or, or, a, or a coffee stop. And everybody says no, but the motorway service stations are always rammed with combustion engine vehicles parked up while people are inside the service stations sitting having coffees and buying their lunches and doing whatever they do. Um, and I say, you know, why think about it when you go into these service stations that you need to go and do what you need to do? And then you need to go and fuel your car and then you need to go on the motorway. Why not just fuel your car while you're sitting there having your coffee? Because then the time it takes to charge that 15 minutes, half an hour, 40 minutes, two hours that everybody throws out there is irrelevant because the car's doing something while you're doing what you need to do. And the car will be charged mm. when you get back there. Yeah, and, and particularly now with all the charging infrastructure, going to a, a service station on the motorway isn't going to be something difficult i mean obviously um availability yeah. might not always be um might not always be easy but there's there's always going to be an opportunity to to charge your car and and as you say you can charge your car at the same time as as getting a coffee having a meal or something like that so you know it's 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 i guess it's just one of those arguments that people make as a potential uh, risk if you're if you're undertaking those really long journeys but then those long journeys uh, happen very rarely in your case, probably more than <laughs> more than other people. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, even in those cases, you would have to obviously maybe plan it out a little bit more. Um, but there's, I think people imagine themselves driving down the motorway and suddenly running out of electricity in their car and then being stranded. Yeah. But it's, I mean, that doesn't happen very often. Well, the, the interesting thing is there was a, a figure came out from the RAC and I, I, I tried to find it before I came on this podcast, cause, mm-hmm. but I know it's, it's, somewhere between, uh, it's somewhere between 50 and 60 cars, I believe it was. So they, they were saying how many cars run out of petrol every day on the motorway yeah. or they get, they get called out to. That's not necessarily how many cars have run out, but how many cars they get called out to for running out of fuel. And it was something uh, ridiculous, like 50 to 60 cars. And when I asked oh. them how many electric vehicle co-ops do they have for, for cars running out of charge, so we have we have no data at this point for that because, I, well, we've we've got we've not really got anything on record. Now, not to say something hasn't happened, maybe with people got AA or whatever, but at the end of the day, when you look at that as a contrast, saying to people, what happens when you run out of charge? Well, it never really happens because you plan a hell of a lot better, essentially, in an electric vehicle than you do with a combustion engine vehicle because that mindset of it just takes two it just takes two minutes to put fuel in, I can run it right down to the edge. Um, that mindset just goes out of the window. You become so much more of an efficient and conscientious driver um, with an electric car. And that's coming from somebody who has taken electric vehicles right down to the edge many, many occasions on, on some of the trips I've done. And I guess we're all creatures of habit. And uh, generally, whenever I whenever we drive on, but I'll talk from my personal experience, whenever I drive down south, which I do, regularly from Aberdeen. Um mm-hmm. generally I'm I'm going down I'm going down the M6. And because yeah. I know the route that I'm taking or I know where I'm going, it's kind of the well I always factor in that service station or that service station because I know it. So that worry about running out of charge when you go on long journeys again is is clawed back because of that because you you're a creature of habit and you will go generally to the places that you know because you like the coffee there or you like the food there or you like the services so in general so you will go back to the places that you know so you've just mentioned there that you use your electric car for long distances there is still a misconception that electric vehicles are more suitable for urban 
inner cities. What's your take on that? Yeah, and I mean, when you look at the networks, we we talk a lot about the service stations because of yes, because that's where a lot of people need the infrastructure for the long journeys. But I mean, in in Scotland here, for example, we have the charge based charging network, the charge based Scotland charging network. And these are installed in most of the local authority car parks, in cafes, in restaurants, in hotel car parks. And national trusts are, are now working quite as a few national trusts in Wales that are doing sites that are doing this as well, where they're installing um, a massive, what we would call fast charger, so a charger where you would pull up with your car and it would charge, um, depending on what charge you have left, but it would charge, it would charge say, from zero to um, 100% in anywhere between four to six hours, eight hours, depending on the size of the battery. If you've got a larger 120, 100 kilowatt hour battery pack, something like that. So um, it's it's not just about just about the motorway services. There's so much infrastructure expanding everywhere because a lot of people are understanding, or businesses are understanding that EV drivers like myself um, will go to destinations because they have a charging facility. And they'll happily go there and they'll spend money at that facility because they're getting the service, they're getting the charging. So the infrastructure is spreading um, quite rapidly and across the UK and across Europe. Um, I've been to quite a lot and the infrastructure is expanding really well there. But again, it, to a certain extent, it needs to, to give public confidence. Um, because a lot of, obviously, our dis the myths that we've tried to dispel over the years, which always puzzled me because we've been talking about the same myths since 2010 is what we talk about today. Um, range anxiety, the batteries run, don't mm -hmm. uh, run out in three years, etc. Um, there needs to be a lot more charging infrastructure underground to build that public confidence. But as, as that, as individual EV drivers confidence uh, increases within, within their driving capabilities, they'll understand that infrastructure is not actually required day to day. It's required on those very few occasions when they do go and, go and have a journey um, to the local mountains, to the mountains or to the local beach or whatever, wherever it be or a longer, field, longer um, journey. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Okay, so we've touched up on it already, but you've completed some, some rather long distance adventures with an electric car, notably uh, John O'Groats to Land's End and also the Mongol Rally. Shall we maybe start with John O'Groats to Land's End and how that all came about and maybe even if you could briefly explain what John O'Groats to Land's End is for people who don't live in the UK. Yeah, so, so John O'Groats to Land's End is, is, for the UK, is the most iconic route that's completed by a lot of people for various charities and Guinness World Records. But it's basically the most northerly tip um, in John O'Groats to the most southerly tip of the UK, Land's End. Um, that is around 800 miles. And a friend of mine, um, on my very first adventure, I met a gentleman called Jonathan Porterfield from Eco Cars. Mm. Um, he's a, a, wonder, a wonderful individual. And we, we got, we got um, to know each other over the many years. And we just had this mad idea that we thought, hey, let's go and drive John the Groves to Land's End. <laughs> and, and we'll basically prove to people with a first generation Nissan Leaf, so you know, 60, 65 miles, driving comfortably, driving carefully. On a, on a battery, and we'll just prove to people that we can you can drive in John and Grace to Land's End um, in an electric vehicle, and we'll see if we can do it in under 24 hours. And that's because we're taking those rest breaks that you would normally take on such a long journey. Um, 
and we we were just over 24 hours on our on our first trip we, wow. we got hold of a nissan leaf from nissan we we set off we shared everything on social media um and we had all these mad capped ideas because after a couple of charges the battery start in temperature started to increase on the car Mm. And we had these, there's an inspection hatch where you can lift it open and we thought, wow, it shows um, the, the emergency release on the battery. And I'm not promoting this to anybody who's listening, by the way. Um, we, we thought if we have the air conditioning going, the air conditioning could get into there and maybe cool the battery down. Um, and all it really did was cool myself and Jonathan down to a point we were frozen by the time we got to land end. It did nothing to the battery. And in fact, the battery didn't even need it um the the battery regulated itself with um no problem and we we drove all the way to land end um rapid charging it back to back um and basically stopping for rest when we charged for that 25 25 minutes each time and that was us when we got to land end but we got to the end and thought actually we reckon we could do that quicker so we actually turned around and drove all the way back to new john the groves and we beat our time we beat our 24 hour time so we just we were we were not that far shy of 48 hours in total for there and back in in a first generation nissan leaves so like 65 miles carefully driven real real world range wow and and just to for some comparison what would be the difference between a, a first generation nissan leaf and a 2020 or 2019 nissan leaf in terms of the range um, well, I mean, we've got the, I haven't had too much experience with the new 62 kilowatt hour battery pack yet, but mm. the, the 40 kilowatt, um, basically you'd be getting comfortably about 130 miles. So we'd be doubling our range oh, wow. per okay. charge. So we'd, we'd easily, we'd easily do that within the 24 hour time slot. In actual fact, I actually did a test with Nissan, um, the guys from Nissan Europe, and we did a three peaks challenge. Okay. So we you basically drive to all the three highest mountains in the UK and summit them and come back down and drive um, within 24, you do all within 24 hours. Um, we completed the challenge on the 24 hours I was driving and thankfully the one the, the NIS head of Nissan Europe was running up and down the mountains. So I was, I was happy with that one. Um, and we completed in 24 hours. The auto car journalists, the experienced car drivers, um, were a mountain behind us and they ended up bailing. <laughs> the, the Nissan Leaf in particular is one of those electric cars that I think um, people know about. Obviously, um, the main electric car that non-EV um, fans or advocates would know is, is the Tesla. But in terms of yeah. affordable um, electric cars, not saying that Teslas aren't, but maybe the Nissan Leaf is that kind of mainstream um, starter, maybe uh, electric vehicle. Yeah, it's it certainly was back then. Um, I mean, now the the market has expanded so much because, I mean, for example, MG have come in with with such an affordable vehicle now. Um, I think they're they're on they're under thirty thousand. They're low twenty thousands for for their electric vehicle and bringing another one out soon as well. But you've got uh, Peugeot and Vauxhall come out with uh, a two hundred eight and, and a Corsa. But back in the day, yes, Nissan was the Leaf was um and it, i mean even people look at the the high-end value and you kind of think today there still is there's so much value on the market because there is a second-hand market for electric vehicles yeah so you know leafs the second the all the first generation leafs and in some cases second generation the 30 kilowatt hour battery pack which for people out there I, I hate talking about battery pack sizes because it confuses a lot of mm -hmm. people and it's a 
the, the, the 30 kilowatt battery pack leave basically is 115 miles. 115 miles of real-world driving range. So those cars, the price of those are coming down so much. The Renault Zoe um, is another car there. The, the value, the price of these cars secondhand is, is so much more affordable now. And so a lot of people say, I can't afford to buy a brand new, one of these brand new electric cars. Go secondhand. It's a great market and there's some great companies out there offering them as well. Yeah, I actually, that's an interesting point you make about the price thing, um, because I think a lot of people think that because electric vehicles are pretty new and modern, there isn't that market for secondhand vehicles, so therefore they have to buy it for the retail price. Um, but as you've just said, there is opportunities to buy electric vehicles, especially older generations, uh, for, yeah. for lower costs. Yeah, they've been on the market since 2000, at least 2010, 2011, so yeah. um, there's, there's plenty of cars out there. Yeah, okay. So John O'Groats to Land's End, was that trip before the Mongol rally or did that happen after? Yeah, no, that was, that was um, my second trip, really, my second adventure. Okay, so and, it, was, and, it was your first real test. Yeah, and, and the, that's the first adventure going into, going into um, the John O'Groats to Land's End was kind of when Plugin Adventures really kind of started to take swing. Mm. And I kind of thought, yeah, this is something that I kind of really want to kind of pursue as, as a hobby at that time. So it really kind of drove things. And then in, in 2017, um, I, I was still involved in the, in the oil and gas industry. I was running a, a manufacturing facility um, for a business that had oil and gas plus a renewable energy um, arm to the business. Okay. Um, and I decided that's enough. I, the opportunity came for me to leave the business. Um, and I decided to do that and, and decided that this is what I wanted to do with my life. This is what I wanted to spend my time doing. And, and no longer was I going to, I did I want to be a part of that industry that basically was destroying the planet, the very thing that I was trying to promote to people to say. Yeah. Um, this is kind of a conflict. It was a conflict for me and it was kind of a, it was kind of a, a strange time, but I knew this was the right thing to do. So I took that, I took that jump. And the Mongol rally was something I'd known about for about six years. And for people, for the listeners that are not not aware of the Mongo Rally, is yeah. basically it's an it's a unsupported um, rally, which is just a public rally. So people start from from London. It's Goodwood Racing Circuit, and they used to drive to Ulaanbaatar, the capital city of Mongolia, but they moved it to Siberia, uh, a city called Ulaanude, mm -hmm. and that's ten thousand miles. And the idea behind it is you start in London. You make your own way to Ulanidi. And when you get there, everybody has a party to celebrate. <laughs> but the the principle behind it is you cannot spend more than one thousand pounds on your car. The car cannot be more than a one point two liter engine. And it's got to be completely unsuitable for the journey. So things like Suzuki Jimmies and, and four by fours and all this thing is completely out of the equation. Mm -hmm. Um the idea behind it is you are, will break down or they want you to break down so you have an adventure. Um, I obviously ticked a number of those boxes and, and pretty much everybody said that the car is the most unsuitable car they've ever had in the <laughs> rally. Um, but obviously value-wise at that time, it was, there was, a, there was uh, that was a little bit of a uh, thing. It was more expensive than 1,000 pound bracket, but the, the rally team said, look, you know, we're happy to, to weigh that because to be honest with you, nobody in the company thinks you're gonna finish the rally. So um they were happy to let us enter yeah. um and and so we we that was me that was me saying to them i wanted to do two things i wanted to just 
try and dispel those myths and straight away just quash them all together that electric vehicles can go long distance if you really needed it to. Yes, we're going to the extreme, but it's showing that you can, you can drive between cities absolutely fine. You can drive from one length of the country to the other absolutely fine. And we wanted to get rid of that. We need all charging infrastructure. For mass adoption, we need charging infrastructure to be absolutely everywhere. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I say that is because once we drove pretty much out of, out of uh, Romania, going to Bulgaria and then Turkey, mm-hmm. we had no infrastructure. There was no charging infrastructure. So we, I had to map every 80 to 90 miles and just look for a town, a village, a building, some sort of power source. Yeah. So I, we could then, and, and I say we because I, my co-driver was my wife on this rally. Oh, wow. Um, we, put, we would pull up at these places and just literally get out with Google Translate and just rough translation into basically saying, can we just plug into your, your home? your restaurant, your petrol station, your cafe. Um, we had electricity pylons, everything um, to get power for the car. Not all of these countries are very developed with electric vehicles. So the fact that there is actually still an opportunity to charge your electric car is pretty amazing. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. It's, it, it was kind of to say to people, look, think outside of your usual daily routines. Think, about mm-hmm. outside, think outside of everything that you're conditioned to think. You have to go to a dedicated location to fuel your vehicle. Well, you don't because nine times out of 10, your home is going to be your refueling station and your car sits, well, they say statistics say 95% of its life, idle, mm. parked, doing nothing. Wow. So 95% of the time, your car is going to be parked and getting refueled, whether, that be your, whether it be your office, if you, have work, if you have workplace charging, or definitely your home because you have access to a three-pin plug um, if you want the slowest form of charging. Um, but then when we were on the trip, on the, the rally, it gave us another opportunity to do a couple of things. It, it wasn't really just all about dispelling those myths. We wanted to also go across continents. We wanted to, we were driving through 10,000 miles. We, we went through something like 18 different countries, two continents. And we were in countries that have never seen an electric car before. We're in countries that some people have never heard of an electric car before. Um, Kazakhstan, for example, when we were there, we wanted to better inform that country because we knew, I knew about their oil and gas background. Um, and I wanted to better inform their, that country about electrification, renewable energy and sustainable energy. Um, and that, to that note, we ended up getting invited to the World Future Energy Summit in Kazakhstan that was happening in the capital city. Okay. This is like the, their biggest energy, world energy event. Um, and so we were there and we, we were one of the guest speakers ended up being one of the guest speakers at that, at that event. And from yeah. there, we met with the CEO of a petrol station, uh, their major state petrol company. We met with the United Nations and I'm pleased to say from that trip, purely from just driving across, we drove the full, um, west to east of that country, the first electric car ever to do that. Um, Wow. That inspired that petrol company and their government to go and start installing charging stations across the country. So they've got now something like 50. It grows every, every, every week, but they've got 50 electric vehicle charging points in that country now. And earlier last year, they announced they were opening the doors to Tesla, the first Tesla showroom in the capital city. Okay. They're opening the doors to Tesla and installing a supercharging network. 
And while I'm not saying I was the reason behind that, I'm, <laughs> I'm saying I like to feel that what we did just opened up the opened up the eyes of that government a little bit more to the future because they have so much potential in that country for renewable energy uh, through wind and solar. Well, what it suggests is that it didn't need a huge amount of convincing as soon as people saw the evidence. Um, mm. Because as you say, they hadn't they hadn't seen electric vehicles before. It's not a it's not a case of really having to convince them because because the evidence is there that it's beneficial both for the environment but also for the country yeah and i think that's the thing that companies we we live in a commercial world and obviously i i, I get that but and we have the countries have to see the commercial viability and businesses have to see the commercial yeah, of viability course. in this and and i fully understand that but it's kind of getting people to to really understand the the inspiring message that what they're doing for the future generations that we're trying to build a better planet but yes there is there is money in it at the end of the day um with 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 renewable energy battery storage vehicle to grid solutions there is so much that businesses can do to transform their model their business models and that's why we're now seeing that shift from the car manufacturers because you know the paradox for them is they've had to sell petrol and diesel cars as much as they can because that's where the profit is for them, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, or else they wouldn't be able to invest in the as much in the in electric vehicles. So there will be a shift at some point, but supply chains and the commercial agreements all need to catch up with that because they can't just switch off their supply chain networks tomorrow because they just want to start making electric vehicles because well the situation we're in just now and i don't want to trivialize the situation we're in just now at all but we are going to be looking at you know mass scale redundancies again because industries will start falling down because the supplies will start falling down because manufacturers have just switched them off and that's you know that's not sustainable yeah the the business side that you mentioned there was was interesting because um as you've said um for anything uh, to work a business has to see the financial benefits of doing so yeah so it's not always about having people like you working for these automotive companies who are actually passionate. But with your experience of working with automotive companies, are there people working for those companies who, who look beyond the financial gain and are actually advocates for electric vehicle adoption? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've worked with pretty much most of the manufacturers out there in some way, shape or form. And, mm-hmm. and I can say there are a, a number of passionate individuals in there. And you know, the needs, I guess I'm, I'm realistic again, there needs to be a balance. There needs to be that the individuals that that play the devil's advocate, but a lot of it, a lot of the, the, the misinformation within the companies themselves is being dispelled by, by these passionate individuals. And I, and I've been, I've been fortunate to work with a couple of those individuals, especially, I don't want I'm not here to promote Nissan, (laughs) but a lot of my work has been done with Nissan predominantly in the past through, through the, through the, um, the, the kind sport that gave me through the media side on, on the rally, um, and having the first, you know, my first car was a leaf and, and all the adventures I did, they kind of, they kind of have got behind from the media side. So I owe a lot to them in that sense, but, um, a lot of the individuals I met within Nissan right up to vice VPs of the company, um, I can say that there are some passionate individuals and and coming from the oil and gas industry, I, I actually met with a couple of um, senior management team from Shell a few months back at a Formula E race. And and it was interesting to have a conversation with them because I and I will say there was one or two of those individuals that it was I could tell it wasn't towing a corporate line. Um, yeah. they really were passionate about Shell looking to transition 
and make a difference. And I think that's another thing that maybe the industry needs to, some industries need to recognize as much as these guys are demonized and I understand and, and they have done some things in the past. We also need to fully understand and realize that they are going to play a massive part in how this energy shift is going to happen because their businesses need to transit need to transition and, and are transitioning as we speak. Um, and it needs to be done at such a rate that the that BPs and shells can can still be living around us and sustaining our world. You're mentioning businesses who are uh, infamous for being in the oil and gas industry, switching to EVs, but actually less so about new companies coming up, um, creating yeah. EVs from the beginning. Because as you say, these these oil and gas companies and the industry in general has a lot of money in it, and these companies are worth billions. Um, yeah. So actually, it's these companies that have the resources. Yeah, I mean, the idealist in me says that I would I would prefer the the latter to prevail. The the, the companies that are coming from grassroots, yeah, um, and and are basically doing it for for that for the right reasons, and they're in it from the start for the right environmental reasons. But the reality is, obviously, a lot of these a lot of the BP shells and all these major corporations that are already out there have the financial backing. They have the client to get behind um the transition of their own and and if that ends up being that they actually support some of these some of these grassroots companies and then then that's fine it's we've we've, we've got to understand there's going to be that's going to happen at some point and some of these some of these people are going to get into bed with each other and it's just a fact of life um and for me as long as it means the planet is going in the right direction and our mm-hmm. um, our heat reduction our heat reduction is is happening on the planet. Then I I wouldn't say I don't care. I I do, but it's it's kind of that's the bigger picture that I guess we need to look to. Okay. I uh, mean, we, I was going to say we have the likes here in the UK. We obviously have the likes of people like Octopus Energy, um, Obo Energy. These kind of companies coming mm-hmm. up, and 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 I think the business models that they've got in place, um, and you know, they, they're in, they. I'd like to feel we're in it for the right reasons. They're starting with a, a sustainable model. They're starting with pure renewable energy, supplying renewable energy to 100% renewable energy to homes. Um, and EDF, they're now transfer, transitioning to that. So if these if these organizations can take a foothold in the market, um, then, then that's what I'd like to see. The next thing I wanted to talk about is actually your Guinness World Record, which I think is uh, pretty incredible. Um, I think we'd all love to be sitting here with a Guinness World Record. Um, but that's for, for the greatest distance on an electric bicycle, not car, in 12 hours. Um, yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit about that and where the passion for electric bicycles comes as well. Yeah, I mean, everything about me is about showcasing uh, low emissions transport. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not a keen cyclist. Um, and, <laughs> and that's one of the things that some people say makes this a world record sound a little bit even more bizarre and, and somewhat mind blowing as well, because I had, my mindset is kind of very can do. I look at something like the Mongol rally, I'd never driven past France, but yet I had it in my head, hey, we're gonna enter the Mongol rally and we're gonna drive to, to, to Siberia. Yeah. And things will go wrong, things will, things will go well, and you, know, you just adapt, you deal with it, but we can do this. And, and that was pretty much like the, the world record. I was, I was chatting with a friend um, at an electric vehicle event and some e-bikes were whizzing past. Um, and for, again, for the listeners that are not too familiar with e-bikes, basically it's, it's a conventional, think of a conventional bike. 
it's pedal assisted. It's a small motor in there. So when you when you pedal um, within three rotations of, of pretty much of pedaling, you can be up to 15 and a half mile an hour. Yeah. And then at that point, the assistance takes over and it's full up your own leg power and, you, and you're just running yourself like a normal bike. And so basically I, I saw these bikes was in Dubai and um, a friend, my friend said to me, look, have you ever thought about doing something with an electric bike? I was like, hmm, okay, um, yeah, you know, good idea because you know it's another form of we need to transition away from from cars and we need to you know in cities it'd be great if we had more uptake of of cycling in cities in, in the UK. So to promote that, I kind of thought, what can I do? Um, and then I've always wanted to hold a Guinness World Record. I've watched that TV show from from a child. Um, mm-hmm. and I thought, cool, I'm going to see what Guinness World Records are out there for electric bikes, and I saw. Um, after a couple of weeks, I saw there was a Guinness World Record out there for the longest distance in 12 hours. It was 110.6 miles. And that was set back in 2016, if I remember rightly. And I looked and I thought, can I do that? Can I do that? And I did a bit of maths and worked things out. And I thought, I reckon I could do this. So um, I got a few people involved, contacted the Guinness World Records to apply for the record. Um, everything was officiated. Everything was officiated, and I could go and take the record. Um, and again, amazingly supported by my wife, who is really the backbone behind a lot of the things that I do. Yeah. Um, and the unsung unsung hero on this, she was managing all the team because everything needs to be officiated. Every single lap, every single hour needs to be documented. Um, so I got a standard bike. I, due to my work schedule at that time, I literally had two hours of training. Um, and I jumped on that bike and cycled in, um, in th- uh, four, three hour stints. Yeah. Um, I did do three hours around the track. It was literally on a close track, just cycling round and round and round for, for three hours, <laughs> five minute break to refuel back on the bike and get going again. And I, and I completed 180.75 miles in wow. that 12 hours in Scottish wind, sleet, snow, <laughs> rain, wind, um, and then sunshine as we get in, in, every, in most days. Um, and, and that was literally just um, owing to the mindset that I have of saying, hey, like I haven't trained, but I'm just going to go and do this because it, it needs to be done. I need to show, I need to show that this is possible, not just from the, I meant, uh, my strength point of view, but from the fact of just how great this technology is because if I can do this with very little training, again, you know, we could replace our cars in, in cities. A lot of people could replace cars for their five mile, even 10 mile commute. Um, and I cycle a lot more now in the cities. I saw the bike you used um, for the world record was the Volt Pulse uh, and it has 60 miles of range. Not all yes. electric bikes have as much range as that. Um, but regardless, for the average cyclist, um, even, even 30 miles would probably be enough. And then it's a really simple um, charge process. Yeah, I mean, and in and in terms of that, I mean, just just to highlight the capability of again of that technology, mm. um, because the the models vary. So some bikes have swappable batteries, some bikes don't. They have built-in batteries because again, day to day, like an electric vehicle, you don't need the full capacity of that battery because it's not working a hundred percent, hundred percent of the time, um, because your leg power takes up over most of the time. But to showcase that technology, myself and a friend, we attended the Fully Charged Live event last year. Okay, yeah. Um, so we actually, I, we challenged each other. He's, we're both big fans of the Renault Twizy. So he drove a Renault Twizy from Aberdeen to Silverstone, which is over 500 miles. Um, and I raced him on that 
exact bike um, <laughs> and being able to swap the batteries. Um, and, and I won <laughs> because the charge time <laughs> of the battery to stop and have to charge the batteries was it recharged within about two hours, the, the, the bike battery and the Renault Zoe charges, sorry, Renault Twizy charges in about that same kind of time. So it was really, it was, it was all about mental strength and, um, and you know, the ability to manage a charging strategy. So it was kind of a good way to show, show how that bike compares to, you know, a similar bit of technology at the time. And, and obviously, for anybody that knows Renault Twizy, it's just, that's just a cool little car to kind of spend some time right. with as well. It doesn't really um, look like a car. It's kind of a mini car with, with wheels that open like a, like a Lamborghini or something like that. It's, it's classed as a quadricycle here in the UK. Okay. So you can't you can't drive on the motorways. It's only allowed on A roads, and um, and it can actually be driven on, uh, I believe, a learner license. Okay. So anybody out there looking to to you know to learn to drive or looking uh, looking for a small car to commute about in, and mm-hmm. on an L license, you've you've got that because you can actually sit two people in the car, yeah. albeit second person in the back straddled straddling the driver um which is a very very unique experience especially with that suspension um which is quite hard (laughs) (laughs) but it's in any car event i will say and you you gave the reference there to lamborghini doors um i've been in so many different events where people will walk past bmw i8s or uh, you know the the latest high-end supercar and they'll look at the renault twizy because it just looks like a cool, little, yeah. cool, little funky piece of kit. So I've seen that through your business plug-in adventures. You've managed to work with some major media companies like CNN, Sky, and the BBC, as well as a lot of automotive companies. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 been like I say, I always refer to it as a bit of a whirlwind, a whirlwind uh, time, and yeah. it's kind of just evolved. I mean, like I say, plug-in adventures was literally a hobby. It started out on social media, just showing what was my then passion for electrification and, and kind of my journey into learning about electric vehicles and charging infrastructure. Um, and then just prior to going on the Mongo rally, it kind of turned into a little bit more because one of the manufacturers wanted to get me on board to see how their car was performing, what it, what it, how, how it would perform under multiple charging um, journeys. And then the Mongo rally happened. And then from there, that's when it really became a, a full-fledged business because I, I saw that that's where the value for me was as an individual to share to share my passion and my understanding and my knowledge with people to try and dispel those myths. And a lot of the work with CNN and and the BBC and, and even Sky News came from the Mongo Rally because um, because of that story that became the basically pretty much one of the biggest stories of 2017 electric vehicle stories of 2017 we our media reach was pretty much in in every country um australia was writing about us argentina was argentina was writing about us we just countries that we'd never thought and and publications never thought about were writing about us and what we were doing um and so then progressed from there that i decided that this is what i wanted to do and the adventures always sound great and it's a lot of a lot of the time i spend on podcasts like this talking about but the reality is I spend probably about five to 10% of my actual working time on adventures because, you know, these things take years, two years, maybe more in the planning to actually make a lot of these things happen. Um, Cause obviously again, when we talk about commercials, these need finance, a lot of these projects need financed. Um, so then I spend an, a big chunk of my time um, working with businesses when we're talking about fleets looking to transition to electrification 
um, and looking at different forms of electrification. So I spend a bit of my time working with uh, organizations and advising them on that. And I spend a bit of time with the Scottish government as well, attending a lot of their electric vehicle events, giving talks about life of an electric car and answering questions from the, from the public about um, charging infrastructure, different cars that are out there. I'm advising them places that they can go to look at um, getting the best deal on a car, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and I have done a bit of work with the BBC as well on one of their car shows um, about okay. advising them on electric car features that they were going to be doing. So that is a side of the business that is starting to expand a lot more. And that excites me a little bit more because, as well, because the adventures are great. The adventures are really good fun to do. Um, but being involved in mainstream media and being involved in events as a speaker or a host allows me to get that message out to a, a bigger audience over the period of those two years where I'm not doing an adventure. Well, yeah, I think the combination of the adventure, which serves as almost a proof that it's possible, and then you know speaking in front of crowds and talking about that adventure is a great combination for raising awareness and advocacy going forward. Yeah, I mean the adventure side of things is for me is always the best is always going to be the best thing as well because you know we we've all grown up with things like Top Gear shows like Top Gear um, and we all like adventure a lot of people like adventure series and that that sparks imagination that sparks fire in people and makes them want to go and do things like that or very uh, maybe on a small scale. Yeah. So the adventure side for me is one it fuels that passion in me to go and travel because I just love experiencing new cultures um, and meeting people from various different countries and, and learning more about their cultures but in turn it's what inspires other people and captures other people when I when we're on these adventures and we're sharing our stories and we're sharing what's happening and we're sharing how we're charging who we're meeting what we're doing and how the vehicles are, are performing people it, it just captures their imagination it opens up their hearts and then immediately you have got them and you could they can take on board so much more information when they're immersed in that project and that's why i mean it was again uh, i will say i'm not to trivialize, trivialize the situation that we're going through just now um because you know we're getting through this is the biggest thing that we need to do and everything else is to a certain extent insignificant but we were a way to i was a way to announce my next basically large-scale international project literally a couple of weeks before um the the uh, lockdown the situation came the covid19 came into play so um and like i say it's it's that's not a big deal um the project is still happening the project will be announced at the right time um but the fact is obviously um anything i can do and, and we can do to support the country to get through this at the moment is the, is the bigger picture but mm -hmm. um yeah there is a there is a big project coming there is and and it's going to be uh, without giving too much away it is going to be basically the biggest adventure and project that the automotive and sustainable industry has ever seen the main thing about it as well is it's it's basically showing that and and everything i've done to date is basically saying that yes adventure the industry we can mm -hmm. go out and adventure we can explore and we can educate the public about our environments yeah. but every adventure has to have a purpose yeah true and this adventure happen. yeah this adventure ha will redefine the way that we adventure and the way that hopefully adventurers out there the industry and the travel industry will then move forward and change the way that they travel they explore the world as well the way i like to finish every 
podcast is by asking if there's anything you'd like to plug, um, which is ironic because your name is Plugin. <laughs> but also also because you've just mentioned that there's a massive project that you're working on at the moment. Um, so I guess that's something you'd want to plug in the, in the future. Is there anything else? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's literally, it's just saying it's the people think about what I've spoken about during the course of, of this podcast about the services that, that I offer. Mm-hmm. It's, I am not just an adventurer. Um, I do so much more. Um, and with regards to the international project, we are on the lookout for, um, for partners for that project. So if anybody, if there are any businesses out there, and I'm again sensitive because obviously this, the climate that we're in just now, but if there are anybody that would like to reach out and, and find out more about that project as a serious investment opportunity, then feel free to get in contact. But again, I'm conscious of the current climate that we're in, so I didn't really want to push that too much. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. Thank you so much, Chris, for joining the podcast. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for thanks for inviting me along. And um, yeah, I look forward to see if I can be of help to anybody in the future. It was fantastic to have Chris on the podcast for our sixth episode. From debunking myths about range anxiety, discussing Chris's EV journeys from Land's End to John O'Groats and the Mongol rally driving in Nissan Leaf, and then his e-bike Guinness World Record, before finishing on his collaboration with media outlets and his next big project. We'll be back for episode 7 on June 3rd.